Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Books and Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Catherine Clett Higgins and Sarah Benet Weiser about believability, sexual violence, media, and the politics of debt. So, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Um, this is an incredibly important book uh, for a variety of different reasons. Um, I try not to date the podcasts too much, um, but even just this morning, uh, I was reading up on a sort of case slash scandal in Australian media and politics that believability speaks to really directly and I think helps us explain, um, but also gives us some clues about how we can sort of challenge and, and, and change the way things like sexual violence is reported in, in media and politics in a variety of different public uh, sphere cases. And the place to start really is, is the story of how you came to write the book, I, I suppose, both in terms of working together on it, uh, but also what gave you the idea that um, a book like this was kind of needed? Yeah, I'll start. Um, so uh, I, Kat and I started thinking about this several years ago when I was at the uh, London School of Economics. And we were kind of looking at the media productions of that that covered sexual violence. So all of a sudden it seemed like, you know, kind of a post Me Too moment where there was, I may destroy you and believe uh, unbelievable and um, the morning show and promising young woman. And it just felt like there were so many media productions that dealt with sexual violence that we really started paying attention to it. We were also talking a lot at that time about you know, at that time, several years ago, there was really a sort of acute crisis of post-truth where disinformation and misinformation were kind of becoming uh, or achieving the heightened visibility that they have, that these kind of processes have now. And so we were kind of wrestling with this weird paradox that we felt was happening, that there was this moment that even the media was picking up on that women, when they make accusations of sexual violence, were finally being believed. Even if that belief was ephemeral, it lasted five minutes, it was, they were being believed. And at the same moment, we had tons of discourse in culture about how nothing is true, how everything is bullshit, how everything is misinformation and disinformation. We don't know what the truth is anymore. So, you know, as feminist media scholars, we were kind of like, okay, so let's think about this moment where women are being believed for the first time and the media is picking up on it. And the media is also telling us that nothing can be trusted and nothing um, is true. So we started thinking about what it meant to be believed. And for whom is this post-truth moment a crisis? And um, and started thinking about the different ways in which arguably women, people of color, um, marginalized folks in all areas have always been in a crisis of post-truth because their very construction, the, who people think they are, um, is fundamentally about them being liars and them being unbelievable. Yeah, absolutely. And I think something else that was motivating the book at that time, uh, which I think you can agree has intensified since then, is any feminist scholar, especially a feminist media scholar, said as soon as there is any kind of forward movement in feminism or in sexual justice, there is backlash almost immediately. And what Me Too did, I mean, we can have a 
a debate about what Me Too did and did not achieve. But what it undeniably achieved is that it created visibility around sexual violence. But so silence and invisibility were no longer kind of reliable mechanisms for patriarchal oppression and control. So there was going to be something else. And the feeling that we had then was that it was going to be a struggle over believability. Yes, the stories are out there, but can they be believed? Can they be trusted? And I think in the present moment, we've seen that really kick off on a much larger scale. Like I think you were referring to the Brittany Higgins case earlier. That's a perfect example. Um, and then also, of course, we have the Depp Heard case from last year, which I'm sure we'll talk about more. But this sense that to speak out about sexual violence now is to become a kind of permanent subject of public doubt. It's a sort of burden of doubt that no amount of worth, no amount of evidence is ever able to overcome. And that's sort of what has stepped in in place of the silencing and in place of the invisibility that these, you know, um, these patriarchal institutions used to be able to count on and that Me Too disrupted. So we really wanted to think about what was and wasn't changing and the aftermath of that movement and how, as feminists, we might need to be reconfiguring how we're working towards a horizon of, of sexual justice. I mean, as you say, you know, in, in order to think about, I suppose, what's needed um, to rise to this changing uh, context and, and particularly that kind of backlash, the book on the one hand introduces, I think, a really important theoretical framework, uh, which I know, you know, draws on some of your previous work thinking about um, the media as having an economy and, you know, um, we'll, we'll dig into that. But I think it also, if I've understood it correctly, kind of defends the project of media studies itself as an academic area, discipline, field that can really add something beyond, you know, just say um, legal scholarship or uh, just, you know, thinking in, in, in terms of sexual violence as a um, legal concern. And these two things, I think, situate the book's analysis and, and, and kind of where it's going. So maybe to start off with, why a sort of a media studies take on questions of sexual violence? Well, I think um, I mean, that is that was one of our important early questions. Why look at the media? And I think that um, one of the reasons, one of the things that we argue in the book is for us to, as Kat said, just said, kind of move forward towards um, sexual justice, um, we need to sort of shift our starting point. We need to shift our analytical starting point. And we are absolutely indebted to feminist legal studies um, and, and the ways in which those scholars and those practitioners have fought to, um, to you know, for women to be believed in sexual violence cases. But the, the, the you know, kind of the, the fact is, is that the legal realm relies on a concept of the truth. And, and that concept of the truth has been about certain kind of epistemological foundations that are about objectivity, that are about rationality, all of the things that women are also um, seen as inherently not, mm -hmm. right? And so, so we thought that if we could shift our starting point from truth to believability, who do we believe and why, um, that we could actually think more productively about how to move forward with this. And that's not happening in courts. That is, though, happening in media. So as I as I said before, we were noticing, and, and Me Too and social media has been a huge part of this. The media has really taken on the project of believability in differing ways, right? It's not always in you know the path of, social, of sexual justice, but it has actually 
wrestled with the concept of believability in the context of sexual violence in a way that is both creative um, and flexible at times, and um, and often about futility, which we feel is actually a productive way to move forward because it's within futility of being believed that we can, you know, kind of find ambivalence and find different ways to move forward. So um, we are media scholars. And so the media is a, is a kind of natural place for us to look. But we also deeply believe as scholars that media, the broader media context is something that we should really take seriously in the context of sexual violence. And I think it's also it was an attempt for us to meet to sort of engage in a kind of ordinary critique of this pushback against Me Too and meet it on its own terms. Because one of the things that you'll hear often about public accusations of sexual violence is either that they need to be established beyond all doubt in order to be believable, or that, and this is perhaps the same thing, that they need to be convicted in a court of law in order to be believable. What we know, of course, is that in the United States, something like 3% of all sexual assaults ever result in a conviction. Does it then follow that 97% of sexual assaults are false? Of course it doesn't. And it's not the case in almost any other aspect of our life as, you know, as, as human beings and as citizens that we only believe that which is completely above doubt. We suspend doubt all of the time. What we're not willing to do often is suspend doubt in cases of sexual violence and in, in accusations of this kind. So I think that we wanted to shift our focus away from legally defined truth in order to sort of surface that contradiction and to highlight the ways that it's problematic for, for feminism and for futures of feminism. Um, but also, like, you know, neither of us are particularly optimistic people, but we have to cling to some <laughs> yeah. optimism. And the thing about looking at the media is that it's it's a kind of, it's a, it's a space of sort of mutability and contention. It, it, this is the place where we see the economy of believability being made which we argue that it is, it's a space where it can be remade. It's a place where we can look for opportunities to redistribute the politics of doubt in a way that might actually be conducive to feminist goals. Um, so it's sort of it's like clinging onto a little bit of optimism by, by one finger each, I suppose. Yeah, and I think I would also just add that, you know, the way in which Kat and I define believability in the book has, um, is deeply, deeply invested in the media. Right. So we define it as having kind of two dimensions. One is um, uh, subjectivity, who one is as a, you know, as a person who's making an accusation of sexual violence or as a person who's committing sexual violence. And and the other one is is performance. You know, how how convincing do you have to be or are you as a victim or as um, someone who has been wronged in this way? And those two things, subjectivity and performance, really are um, kind of come together in the media, whether or not that's fictional media like I May Destroy You, or if it's, you know, news media like the, you know, the um, the New York Times expose on Harvey Weinstein, right? So so that those that's another reason why we wanted to kind of think about believability rather than truth, mm -hmm. because it relies on these, these mutable sort of um, dimensions of subjectivity and performance. I mean, you... You Kat mentioned uh, the economy of believability. Mm -hmm. I think that's really crucial and sort of sets the broader context for exactly those contestations that you, you've been talking through. You know, who gets to be believed, who doesn't, um, where power lies. And I wonder if we could just, before we get into um, those examples you've talked about about things like fiction, nonfiction, 
if we just hear a bit about what the economy of believability is, I suppose, as a kind of framework. Sure. I mean, it maps to an extent onto these categories of subjectivity and performance in that it's labor and resources coming together to negotiate who is allocated believability. Um, and by believability, we mean who is able to, who is positioned as earning the suspension of doubt and at what point doubt will be suspended. So that sort of uh, resources element kind of maps onto the subjectivity. Obviously, different subjects are positioned differently within this economy as a starting point by sort of the historical construction of some types of subjects as inherently objective or honest or trustworthy and others as, as the inverse. But then beyond that sort of uh, uneven starting point positioning, there's the question of labor or what one does to make oneself seem more believable. Um, and this can be forms of affective performance, performing victimhood. This can be supplying different types of evidence. But we wanted to sort of get at the tension between this kind of uneven positioning, which is something that feminist legal studies has really hi highlighted, um, you know, for decades, but also this uh, these types of labor that people can do to try to change their positioning. And that's labor that we see more often than not taking place in a media context, which is why we why we centered the media. Yeah. And I would also just add that, like, you know, in every economy, like Kat just said, you have labor, you have resources, you also have commodities. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, the first two chapters in the book are really about the sort of commodification of believability. And so there we look at media productions, um, both fictional and nonfictional. We also look at actual products that, you know, kind of come into this marketplace of anti-sexual violence. Um, um, so ranging from things like consent apps and bystander witnessing apps to actual products like nail polish that you can dip in your drink to see if you've been drugged, um, you know, um, you know, scrunchies that you put in your hair, but that you can also cover your drink with to like reimagine chastity belts and the ways in which these products, these commodities also provide you know, are part are an, a crucial part of this economy of believability. You have to have consumers, and um, tragically, you know, there are a lot of people who have been impacted by sexual violence, and so so the market sort of exploits that and takes um, takes advantage of that. And so, it's resources, it's labor, and it's also commodities. And so. Kind of coming from my earlier work on the economy of visibility, this is sort of a subset of that. So within that visibility, we wanted to really hone in on believability and think about sexual violence specifically as a particular economy. I mean, within uh, the sort of earlier chapters, engagement with commodities and commodification. I guess you've got a couple of things going on. One is the inherent problem of commodification. But also connecting it to, um, you know, and Kat, you touched on this already. Long-standing feminist critiques that say many of these things are not individualized. Responsibility should not be placed, you know, on, onto individuals. And at the same time, the idea of you need to effectively be buying products to be a subject who can be believed within its economy. And I'm sort of interested to know, that, I guess, what your and you, you've sort of touched on this already, um, Sarah, but what your kind of critique of commodification is in the context of belief that... I mean, I'll, t I'll take the, the, the products first, and then maybe you could talk sure. about the media. Um, 
Um, um, what are what are our problems with commodities within the anti-sexual violence marketplace? Well, for one thing, they do they you know if if they are promising to provide a sort of evidence that something happened, right? And so so it's the burden is placed still on the person who has been assaulted or or harassed or um, you know a victim of sexual violence that the burden is placed on them to convince someone that they have in fact been a victim of sexual violence. So, so there's, you know, a way in which consent apps, for example, you know, it's basically an application on your phone where, you know, both parties consent, affirmatively consent to sexual interaction. But we know that, you know, sexual interactions are rarely captured by a contract and, um, and, are often complicated and messy and contradictory. And so, you know, if 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 something would happen where consent was withdrawn or not given later on, this actually gives ammunition to the perpetrator. Look, I have a contract. You signed it. There obviously there couldn't be anything that was non-consensual that happened, you know, or or the other thing is that if if there's this idea somehow that if you don't use blingy pepper spray or a drink scrunchie or um, you don't have the right nail polish on to know if you've been drugged, um, then somehow it's your fault, right? That, that you know, you didn't prepare yourself well enough. So the sort of proliferation of products in this marketplace actually works against victims of sexual violence because it more intensely puts the burden of doubt on them to prove that this has happened. And if they don't use these technologies, that's even worse, right? So, you know, we we talk about that sort of um, um, ways, the, the ways in which these technologies and these products work against victims rather than for, even though their ostensible purpose is to protect women. And I think thinking, shifting back into chapter one a little bit and thinking about sort of entertainment media and journalism, it's a delicate critique because on the one hand, we know that a kind of um, central myth of rape culture is that women have something to gain by reporting sexual assault, by making allegations of sexual assault. Often it's financial gain is what is positioned as kind of um, what's in it for women. Um, and, you know, we can look at how Donald Trump has handled basically every accusation against him for evidence of this. It's always that they're out for money, though no one can really tell how any money is supposed to get to survivors. But Anyway, so there's that myth, but at the same time, it's undeniable that one of the things that Me Too did do was that it created a market for Me Too-related stories, Me Too-related television productions, Me Too-related books, um, and it did sort of, the, the movement was marketized as, as so many kind of viral social justice movements tend to be. So our thinking in terms of a critique of that commodification is obviously the problem is not that there are now too many stories about sexual violence. It's, it's excellent that people have a forum to tell these stories and that they're being compensated for their time to do so. The problem is rather in how this may narrow the scope of the type of stories that get told because of the logics of the media and the way that the media is attuned to specific types of stories from specific types of subjects. So obviously Sarah and her work on the economy of disability has talked a lot about race and about whiteness and about class and how, you know, we are attuned to particular types of subjects whose stories stand out as being somehow exceptional or sensational, often because of the way that they're racialized and classed. 
Um, another thing that we see that we mentioned a little bit in the book is while we've seen an explosion of stories about sexual violence, those stories tend to conform to a particular kind of narrative wherein the criminal justice system is the ultimate sort of the ultimate path for, for restoration and for justice because this is an existing script in media. So it's sort of taking the, um, the kind of cop show format and just inserting sexual violence into it. And we talk about the futility of reinvesting in that system in terms of delivering real, real gains um, for sort of marginalized people. So I think the issue with commodification there is not that these stories are, are out there and that people are being paid to make them. We think that's fantastic. It's just about how it narrows the scope of the type of story that we can tell because it exists within this kind of cultural economy that the media uh, circulates. Can we dig into a couple of um, those sort of examples of representation? Mm-hmm. So one of the things that um, really comes through, and um, I, I think Sarah, you, you mentioned a couple of these uh, shows already, or Morning Show, I May Destroy You, um, and, and actually, you know, I May Destroy You had, um, if I remember correctly, in the book, it talks about, you know, elements of almost sort of celebration of like, great, we've got a sexual violence story that can be sold, the packaged and commodified. Mm-hmm. There is a market for this. And and I guess if we move, I, I suppose, on that broad um, outline you've given of how this um, market for representations functions, I wonder if we could hear a bit about some specific examples. So sort of pick any of the fictional or nonfiction you, you'd like, actually, um, if you could just talk me through Sure. Um, uh, you know, one of the one of the first things that actually Kat and I watched together was an HBO series called Unbelievable. Um, that was a story about a woman who had been raped um, based on a true story. These are all kind of I may destroy you also kind of based on a true story of Michaela Cole's life. Um, you know, so these are all kind of distilled for television, but they're based on real life stories. And Unbelievable is a story about a a young woman who was raped by a stranger in her home. She came forward to the police um, and to her foster parents. And at first, people really took her seriously. But then she clearly didn't perform victimhood well enough. She wasn't traumatized enough, or at least she wasn't displaying trauma. She didn't seem, she kind of went on with her life as if you know, that was even a choice, right? And so she ends up withdrawing her accusation because the police basically convince her that she was making a false accusation. And so that's really when we started thinking about the labor of being believed. What it takes for a woman to be believed um, is is in- enormous and complex. And um, and in that, in that show, um, uh, eventually, I don't think this is a spoiler. It's many years old. So, um, but eventually, she's exonerated from this false accusation because it turns out that, not surprisingly, women cops um, actually find that there was a pattern with this particular rapist. And and in the end of the of the series, she's with her therapist, and her therapist says, you know, obviously this this is a horrible thing that happened to you. But is there anything that you've learned from it? You know, is there anything that you can take away from it? And and she said, and it's just an incredible, te- again, I'm a media scholar. It's an incredible moment of television where the young woman says, Marie says, yeah, I'd lie earlier and I'd lie better because there was no way that I was going to be believed. 
you know, and it's that kind of futility of being believed and the labor it takes to become the best kind of victim ever, you know, um, and you can see this all over in the media, not just in the fictional programs, you can see it in, and, and, you know, the UK's media coverage of Sarah Everard, you know, as, as someone who was just walking home, um, you know, as if someone who was not just walking home deserves to be, you know, raped and murdered. Right. And so there's, there's a way in which this labor of being the the right kind of victim is so overwhelming. And, and we really do feel that some of these programs really capture that futility and in a in a way that that makes us think deeper about what it means to be believed. And I would add one thing to the discussion of, of unbelievable, because I think this is the show that everyone has sort of seen as everyone's sort of touched on an example for this phenomenon. But it, it's sort of, it's it's presented as a story of someone who starts out unbelievable, becoming believable. But she actually never becomes believable. They find a photograph by accident of her sexual assault in process, and then they track her down. So the people who doubted her never actually shift that doubt. She's not believed. She's kind of almost exonerated. Yeah. I use that word purposefully because she was treated like a criminal for reporting. So I think that there's... There's a kind of futility in the representations as well. Where sort of representations do a very good job of surfacing the labor of what it takes to report and to endure through the process of reporting and to endure through the kind of aftermath of a sexual assault in one's life. But they don't get us to a place where we're really having a confrontation with what allocating believability to stories of sexual violence would look like and mean. Because almost always that's kept at arm's distance from these protagonists. Even if something happens at the end that sort of vindicates them in some way, it's something that conforms to a logic that we need to be getting away from. So in Unbelievable, it's that there's a literal photograph of the assault. And so therefore she can be believed. In the morning show, which we watched, the victim uh, dies. And it's only with that kind of spectacular loss of, of death. And it's ambiguous whether this is an overdose or a suicide. But it's only that kind of spectacle of suffering and pain that sort of constructs any empathy around this person, which is also not something that we should expect survivors to have to undergo in order to gain sort of sympathy and compassion and justice ultimately. So I think that's there's the futility as represented in the texts, and then there's the futility that we feel as feminists watching them going, oh, we're sort of we're surfacing things, but we're not quite getting at the crux of the problem, which is that at some point. We need to arrive at a place where we understand that sexual violence is endemic in society and it's a characteristic rather than an exceptional expression of patriarchy and white supremacy. And so all stories are inherently believable, if not always believed, believable as a starting point, which is not the starting point that we operate with now. Yeah. And I think um, <clears throat> just to give one more example, um, also, because um, because I'm a media scholar and I May Destroy You is some of the best um, television I have seen in decades. It's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant show. Um, and in the end of that, they provide three different endings, mm -hmm. right? So they refuse to do exactly what Kat was just saying, is to provide this kind of singular narrative about how people can be believed and also how people get over you know, um, assault and and move forward. And so that sh that show in particular, we just were compelled by it because it it had so much to do with what we were talking about, the ambivalence and the mutability 
the flexibility of being believed in what it means. And here's different scenarios that she actually puts into the show. And it also, it also, like you mentioned, Dave, earlier, um, you know, when she when she tries to um, Arabella, when she goes to her publisher saying instead of this novel that I've contracted, maybe I could write this. And, and, and you know, her publisher was like, rape, rape. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Just the kind of sheer terrifyingness of that, you know, but also we know that that's how the media works. Right. So it's it was terrifying and also rang so true. Um, as part of this economy of believability. And so, you know, those, 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 you know, to some of the shows are that we saw, we certainly make a, an evaluation of, of which ones we feel push us in a productive way to think about so, uh, sexual justice and which ones retrench mm-hmm. legal categories um, um, or, or, or kind of tired tropes of women dying you know, promising young women, you know, people are like, oh, this is such a great post-feminist movie. She dies. And two, the two women that are at the center of it are dead at the end, you know? And so I don't know. I'm a feminist. I don't think that that's, you know, necessarily something that I want to jump up and down and celebrate, you know? And so, so it's, there are different ways that these, the stories of believability are told. Um, and we try to parse through them um, to give a sort of broader picture of the sort of complicated and contradictory landscape that we're that we're living in. Yeah. And one thing I'll just add that I May Destroy You does really well is that it gets stuck in to the idea that believability and belief, it's more than one thing. Because Arabella isn't really doubted by anyone except her partner. Her partner's very dismissive and kind of responsibilizes her for the assault. But when she tells the publishers, they don't say, oh, I don't think this happened. They believe it as an event. What they don't do is allocate her the kind of believability that recognizes that sexual assault would have an effect on her life, and particularly an effect on her ability to finish her book on contract. So belief, like belief has to actually do something for survivors to have any value. And more often than not, what survivors are able to get, as in Arabella's case, is they're able to establish believability around the fact of the assault, but not around the facts of what an assault means for a person and what recovery looks like for somebody who's been through something like that. Um, and I think that it, it, as a show, deals with that ambivalence really, really well. And I think I agree with Sarah. I think it's sort of singular within this kind of emerging genre of sort of Me Too themed um, representations. Kat, you, you mentioned doubts a couple of times. And, and the middle of the book brings us, um, I guess, into the realm of either recently concluded or sort of ongoing Um has they say real world given the mediatization of some of the um, events and cases that, that you're analyzing in, in the book? I mean, Depp Heard in particular here in the UK, um, there's been a sort of ongoing television series over the last sort of month or so about the trial. Separating the trial out from its mediatization is, I'd say, almost impossible. <laughs> um, even reading the kind of, you know, court's transcripts as a, as a way, you're still surrounded by, as, as the book gets into, the idea of this um, court case taking place online as much as it is in a courtroom. And because you mentioned doubts a couple of times, I'm interested in, I suppose, what, what that word means in the context of, of the book. Why have you got a chapter about doubts? You know, why is it important to kind of think through doubt and maybe in the context of these uh, more real world examples? Mm, I think, well, I think there's two things. Doubt is so central because it's, it's almost the force that believability struggles against. You have to doubt is the sort of burden to be overcome. But I think 
the reason that we focus on it so much is because we want to draw attention to two things. One is in a media environment, a digital media environment in which doubt is kind of endemic, in which everything is suspect, everything is susceptible to manipulation, to artifice, doubt is sort of everywhere. The point at which we are willing to suspend doubt for different types of subjects becomes a really important political fault line. And then connectedly, we want to draw attention to how that point is fundamentally different for different types of people. And doubt works in fundamentally different ways for different types of people. So um, I think that the the depth code case is a perfect example of this because what you would see in this kind of um, you know justice for Johnny movement is people kind of saying, well, we can't know for sure. We can't know that it wasn't two-sided. We can't know that this, that, or we can't know that this video was authentic. They would cast doubt. But that uncertainty did not result in uncertain consequences or an uncertain position for those people about who they were sympathetic to. Because doubt simply doesn't work for Amber Heard in the way that it works for Johnny Depp. It's exonerating and it's sort of buoying for him while it seeks her. Because for Amber Heard to achieve a kind of public believability, she would have to be wholly and completely above doubt. But in the kind of digital media environment that we're trying to discuss, that's not a standard that really anyone could meet because every every piece of evidence you could supply can have doubt cast upon it in the era of, you know, digital manipulation, deep fakes and that sort of thing. So that's the reason that we kind of put doubt at the center of the book. Yeah. And we and and it's to come off of what you just said, Kat, um, we talk about it specifically as the digitization of doubt. So the way in which I mean, you mentioned, Dave, the, you know, about the trial, like trying to separate that trial from its mediatization. I mean, there is no way it was d- literally designed to be mediated, right? I mean, it was like they, they you know, the, it was it took place in a very specific state, in a very specific courtroom in the United States that allowed live streaming of this. It, it, you know, um, it did not sequester the jury. So, so um, a- a- every day that jury would come home and read all the social media, there was an absolute explosion of of media coverage. I mean, you know, when we were looking at this, there was one graph that, you know, said that that the kind of percentage of people in the United States who were watching material on Depp Heard was like eight times as much as the people who were watching coverage of the Ukraine war. Yeah. Right. I mean, it was it it took on a sort of mediated significance that then kind of, you know, worked to stand in for what many people talked about as the failure of Me Too. Right. That, you know, Me Too is dead because here we have this case where, you know, she is not a a good enough victim. She is clearly a liar. She is not believable. And so in that chapter, we look at how doubt moves on across and within digital platforms. And some of it is is quite well known, you know, just the sort of democratization of of the digital right where. You can you can use platforms to offer your story. You can use platforms to challenge other people's stories. Um, we also talk about evidence and how the digital provides us with a new paradigm of evidence. Um, and we talk about the receipts, right? And how the receipts come to um, mean not in, in the digital world, not that something has been purchased, <laughs> right? But that something has occurred. And so the ways in which digital images and and text messages and 
you know, um, screenshots and videos are uploaded and circulated and manipulated. And it becomes this sort of morass of information um, that is all about placing doubt. And like Kat said, unlike other political discourse realms, in, in the context of sexual violence, there you have you know to to be able to be believed you really have to be almost wholly above any kind of doubt and how on earth is that going to happen in um in a digital sphere where we're talking about manipulation and um and um it, you know decontextualizing and context collapse and all the rest of it mm -hmm. so we talk about how doubt is configured differently in the digital sphere than it has been historically in the legal realm. And I think just to connect the doubt question back to your earlier question about commodification, the other reason that doubt is so important is because, I mean, this is not a this is not an original, you know, intervention of ours, but we know that media industries thrive on engagement and that one of the biggest drivers of engagement is controversy. So there is a kind of um a sort of a financial mechanism built into these platform environments and built into media industries, including the news media, where keeping an accusation as contentious as possible is ultimately what will most make it susceptible to, to monetization and to profit. And who, of course, benefits from keeping accusations contentious? It's, it's men who are accused, not the people who accuse them. So it's not just that there's something intrinsic to the media environment that is sort of doubtful in the most literal sense, but that there are also financial incentives to keep accusations within a frame of doubt for as long as possible to steer kind of public engagement with the case, be it through the news or through social media. Um, and that's ultimately never something that's going to work in survivor's favor. And, and I would just add to that this is not just about um, sort of gender in, in the way that we've been talking about it. This also has deep racial implications. So, so you know, um, women are as we've been talking about for the past half hour you know the the burden of doubt is on women if they have um when they make a, an accusation of sexual violence um and they're rarely believed unless they are white women who accuse men of color <laughs> right and this has a long history um you know um in the united states you know a long long history and of course the most well-known case is emmett till you know where you know, years and decades later, his accuser, after he was brutally murdered, um, did come forward and said she lied, right? But she was believed. But that that is a pattern that has not stopped, you know, where where you, you know, as, you know, the privilege of whiteness also adds a certain level of believability um, to one's accusation. And you can see it being weaponized against people of color, against queer people against marginalized folks in all areas. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things I was going to touch on was uh, the importance of an intersectional lens, which comes um, both throughout the book, but you, you've got a specific chapter that tries to think about these intersections. But I, I suppose maybe, maybe we can conclude on, on two points. One is, again, this runs throughout the book, but it, it's more present in the final uh, two chapters, is the question of the kind of the backlash. And what's fascinating is, Taking the economy of believability as the framework, it means, at least in, in the way I read the book, that we can start to understand what's going on with high-profile men. You know, in some cases, presidents, Supreme Court justices, and mm -hmm. uh, there's you know examples of, of things like uh, college athletes, you know, famous coaches, this kind of stuff. And to try and distill that into a, an actual question you could answer, 
I suppose the question becomes, how does the book's framework help us understand the backlash, the way that particular high-profile men can, they themselves, position themselves as victims, make claims to believability for their own stories, even if we're dealing with, you know, in some cases, ludicrous power imbalances. And, um, you know, in, in, in certain cases, we could think of, you know, almost kind of cut and dry situations where you're like, come on, you know, how can you even, and I'll use a very gender term, how can you have the balls to be, you know, claiming you're a victim here, this is new bits. So yeah, how does uh, the economy of believability help us to kind of understand what's going on with those claims that high profile, powerful men make? I can start. Sure. Like, well, I think one of the things that we sort of end the book on is we didn't want to be completely sort of, you know, fatalistic at the end of the day, there's no hope. So we, and you know, I think that um, for for all the conversations that we definitely need to be having about the limitations of what Me Too did and didn't achieve, one thing it quite concretely has achieved is, and this is where the economy of believability comes in, is that this idea of believability labor, this is something that has been distributed differently in the current moment. So we are seeing, you know, predominantly white men in positions of institutional power labor for belief in the public sphere in a way that they didn't have to before. For example, we talked about Supreme Court justices. We talked about Brett Kavanaugh. He had to sort of engage in a kind of public spectacle of victimhood in order to get himself um, confirmed to the Supreme Court. So this is this is some kind of redistribution of the work. I think what we're trying to do by connecting this moment to the post-truth question is showing that actually, even though accused men are laboring for belief and marginalized subjects are laboring belief, they're not laboring under the same terms and they're not laboring towards the same goal because all that Kavanaugh needed to do in that situation was instill enough doubt that impunity would become the default. And that's not a default that Christine Blasey Ford could have relied on. It's not a default that marginalized subjects of all kinds can ever rely on. So I think what we're trying to show about the backlash is one that even though it's engaging in strategies that look quite similar, they it doesn't need like you know the backlash doesn't need to take those strategies anywhere near as far um, as survivors have had to. But also that one of the kind of um, the key sort of techniques or the key goals of this sort of misogynistic backlash to me too is to return sexual violence itself to a post-truth frame to a sort of condition of permanent irresolvability. So that accusations seem, basically so that every accusation seems unconfirmed because it is by definition unconfirmable. If we are sort of said, if, if the standard is we cannot allocate belief until doubt is fully overcome and in the current media environment, doubt can never be fully overcome, that, that closes down belief for survivors on all fronts. And I think that this is something that we can see the backlash really trying to do in the current moment. It's not I think that when, you know, Justice for Johnny Depp is a perfect example. They weren't trying to establish believability for Depp. They were just trying to cast enough doubt on Heard that Depp could enjoy believability as a default. Um, and I think this is an emerging technique of these sort of networked misogynistic movements. Yeah, and I, I would just, just to add very quickly, um, you know, throughout the book, what what we do as as, as scholars is we take, um, we, we utilize a conjunctural analysis. So w- when we are talking about believability, about doubt, about sexual violence, about victims, it's not just um, about what is happening in these particular cases. The Depp Heard trial took place at a particular conjuncture. 
um, where we're also seeing creeping fascism. We're seeing, you know, normalization of white supremacy, um, increasing violence against marginalized folks um, that that continues to increase um, in really terrifying ways. And the network to misogyny and and um, and the kind of digital the digitization of doubt. So thinking about all of those things as a conjuncture rather than just kind of focusing on, you know, sexual violence as a discrete practice or discrete mm-hmm. assault, I think allows us also to um, to connect it back, like Kat said, to this post-truth moment and to think about how it is that the backlash actually, like you said, like there are these cases where you're like, are you kidding me? And, and, and they just go through, you know, and, and, you know, people like, you know, Brock Turner, whose, whose father says to the judge, you know, um, you know, his life has been ruined for 20 minutes of action. And then he's given three months in prison after brutally assaulting an unconscious woman. You know, it's just that those, that conjuncture allows and authorizes that kind of victimhood to be privileged over the unconscious woman, right? Because of all of these different discourses and practices that are happening that are privileging white men as particular kinds of victims. I think that's one of the most powerful. I mean, there are many sort of important things the book does, but the sense that a framework that can help us to explain, you know, retrospectively something like Gamergate and then thinking about in the Australian context, controversies over war crimes. I think believability has that, you know, sort of transferability, if that's a word, um, where it can really help us to explain what's going on, both with things like how the standards for doubt and believability are constructed digitally, but also in terms of how key players now can, uh, I suppose, use these same moments to their own advantage Mm -hmm. in, in really sort of pernicious and quite horrible ways. There's a lot more we could talk about. You know, there's, we sort of scratched the surface of, of the books, both its analysis, but also its examples. And with a text like this, it, it, it almost seems a bit unfair to be like, what, what's next? <laughs> Isn't it about time you, you were doing more work? But it, it struck me there's, you know, sort of several agendas that could come from this, but, but also it, it's the kind of thing that could be a sort of, um, agenda setting book that you might not need to come back to. Um, so maybe I'll start with you, Sarah. So what are you working on sort of now um, and next? You know, where does this agenda go next, or are you doing something slightly different? Sure. I mean, I will say that um, you'll have to take my answer with a grain of salt because after I wrote Empowered, which was about misogyny, I said I'm not going to write about misogyny, and then I write about a whole book <laughs> with Cat on on sexual violence. I w- would really like to write on something that. Um, is not traumatic to actually research. Um, um, but I think what you said is is actually quite meaningful to us um, and and is one of the things that we precisely hoped for for this book, which is that believability as an analytic co- is sort of transferable, that, it, that we wrote about sexual violence, but there are other ways in which we can think about this sort of uh, economy of believability. So one of our uh, kind of next projects, at least for now, it's a smaller kind of articles type thing is we've been, you know, again, captured by this heightened visibility of media productions that focus on women con artists. 
and the ways in which women um, in things like, you know, The Way Down and Lula Rich and 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 The Vow and um, Inventing Anna, the dropout, um, bad vegan. You know, there, there's so there's all of a sudden there's this kind of interest in the in the female con artist, and we really feel like that has a lot to do with believability. Mm-hmm. You know that that um, that you know when people say that in Silicon Valley now, um, don't even try to, um, you know, have a startup if you're blonde because of Elizabeth Holmes, and and um, and and her you know debacle and her lying. Right. It's an indictment against women. Right. It's and it's a reassurance to those who need to hear it that women are inherently liars. They're inherently con artists. Right. And so we're kind of thinking about believability in, in terms of the con um, and and that sense. Um, so that's what I'm working on now. The next project will be on unicorns. Um <laughs> And, and I believe in unicorns. I'm taking the believability. Um, uh, no, I don't. I'm not sure what's going to come next, but that one is is what we're working on right now. Yeah, I'm very. I'm really excited about this this con artist project. So I think it just it contains a lot, and it, it's again, it's an ambivalent back. I mean, if we think of the con woman as a kind of backlash text, it's an ambivalent backlash text. On the one hand, it is a pushback against the kind of tenuous believability that's been allocated to some sorts of women. But it's also existing in a cultural context where we are having important conversations about the harm that white women's believability has done to other people and continues to do to other people. So I think it's going to be an interesting one to grapple with, um, and I'm looking forward to that. And then, I mean, I would love for my next book to be about unicorns. Let's do it. Uh, Let's do no, it. I've gone the depressing route again. Yeah, actually, you should talk, say a quick thing about yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, I'm my next book is sort of continuing, continuing with this thinking about victimhood. Um, and looking at the way that victimhood is working across a variety of backlash movements, particularly on the far right. Um, and it's thinking in particular about hypothetical victimhood and sort of claims to victimhood where the kind of injury that marks you as a victim is located in an imaginary future that has not yet and may may never arrive. Um, and it's called tenuously, it's called victimhood because <laughs> we love a pun. Um, yeah, but that's that's what I'll be thinking through next. And I'm sure it'll be uh, depressing, as always. But yeah, <laughs> but, 